Hi, it's Peter Martin here, Economics Editor of The Conversation. This is just a quick message to say that if you're interested in all the latest evidence-based analysis on politics, policy, economics, science, all of the issues making news in Australia, sign up today to our newsletter at theconversation.com. Now back to the podcast. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. Today, we're hearing about the Parkes Radio Telescope, you know, the dish, and its role in the search for alien life. I'm handing you over now to Antonio Tarquinio, an editorial intern with The Conversation, who spoke to the irrepressible John Sarkissian the operation scientists, on site at the telescope. You know, can you imagine the profound impact it will have on, on us as, as human beings it, when we discover that there are other civilizations just like us elsewhere in the universe? At this time, the only place we know in the entire universe where there is life is right here on the Earth. We haven't even found microbes on Mars or the Moon or anywhere, you know, um, let alone, you know, intelligent creatures that we can communicate with. And so if something is found, it'll be extremely world-shaking news, if you like, you know, extremely profound. And so for me, that's why it's such an exciting project. That's John Sarkisian. My name is John Sarkisian, and I'm an operations scientist at the CSIRO Parks Radio Telescope. He's talking there about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and how the Parks Radio Telescope is playing its part. You've probably heard of the Parkes Radio Telescope, which played a major role in 1969, receiving and broadcasting Apollo 11, the first moon landing. They even made a movie about it, The Dish. One week in September, I went to Parkes to find out more about the research underway there and how astronomers are using this enormous radio telescope to reveal some of the mysteries of our universe. John Sarkisian has been at the facility for decades, but his interest in space began much, much earlier than that. I've always been interested in space from a very young age. In fact, when I was six years old, I watched Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon. At the time, I had no idea where those signals were being received and transmitted to 600 million people around the world. As I grew older, I learned that Parks was involved and so on. And, um, and that's, I guess, where, where Parks first came into my own consciousness, you know, the, of its role in in astronomical history and, and Australian science and so on. In fact, on the cover of my Year 9 Mathematics textbook was a painting of the Parkes Radio Telescope. I remember sitting in the class, staring at the painting and daydreaming and working there one day. And so here I am now, 40-some years later, and, um, and I look out my window and there's the Parkes Radio Telescope. So can you tell us a bit about your work and what does a typical day look like for you? Okay, I'm an operations scientist. I'm in the team of the science operations on the site here at the Parkes Telescope. Essentially, we look after the, the science operations side of things. We look after the astronomers, make sure the telescope is functioning for them, that the astronomers themselves know what they're doing, that they're correctly trained to use the telescope. And essentially, I describe it as being, you know, doing everything possible so that the astronomers get the best possible data from the instrument itself. Okay, and that might involve writing software, um, writing manuals, um, helping with observations, training the new observers, setting up the system, making sure that everything's working, that the entire system is, is functioning as, as it's supposed to. And that's really 
um, quite exciting because it, it's it's so varied the job you know we have lots of different types of observations from pulsar research through to VLBI to spectral line work um, and even SETI. A typical day for me would be when I arrive at work around 8 in the morning um, I see what happened overnight to see if there are any issues that I should be addressing and, and fixing and making sure that everything has worked and if not make sure that they're corrected and that the astronomers can continue getting good data from their, their observations. I would then also, if I have to train some observers, I would, I would do that. Nowadays, because we have remote observing, I do that via Skype, where they could be on the other side of the world and I'll be training them here in, from my office um, um, on how to use the telescope and, and operate it efficiently. In addition to that, I do, I do a lot of outreach also. I show various tour groups around the telescope and explain the work that we do and um, basically do whatever I have to to make the telescope work correctly for the astronomers and get the best possible science out of it. So for someone who's never been to parks before, what, is, what does the dish look like? What does the facility look like from your perspective? Okay, the Parkes Radio Telescope is known as the dish, and there's a reason for it. It actually does look like a dish. You know, it's a parabolic antenna, 64 metres in diameter, and it's essentially just the glorified radio antenna. Very, very sensitive. Its large size gives it great sensitivity. And because of the size and the shape, it allows us to detect radio signals coming from very specific points on the sky. The structure itself is sitting on a tower about 10 to 15 metres in height. Surrounding the, the telescope are the various buildings that we, we have on site, the administration building, and also we have the visitor centre nearby where visitors can, can visit and get really close to the telescope. We describe it as being in the shadow of the dish, quite literally. Um, it's only about 100 or so metres from the telescope itself and it's, it gives a, a fantastic view. So it's a radio telescope here. So can you please explain to us what is a radio telescope and how is it different to, say, a normal light telescope known as an optical telescope? The Parkes telescope is a radio telescope. It does often confuse people because whenever you say telescope, the first thing everyone imagines is something you look through. But our job here is to study the radio emissions from the stars and other objects in space. For example, hydrogen gas, which is the most abundant element in the universe, it makes up 75% of the universe, radiates predominantly in the radio wavelengths. So if you want to study most of the universe, you have to study it in the radio frequencies. Radio is just part of the electromagnetic spectrum. When radio was invented in the, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it opened up an entirely new window of the electromagnetic spectrum, so to speak, you know, where you go all the way from gamma rays at one end, um, very high energy waves, if you like, to radio on the, the other end. In between is the visible light, and that's where our sun radiates most of its energy. And astronomers discovered that the universe was, in addition to all the visible light, was emitting enormous amounts of radio energy also. And if we wanted to study that, you needed to build large, sensitive radio antennas to be able to do that because the energy we're trying to detect is incredibly weak. It's extremely feeble energy and so t radio telescopes have to be enormous in size. Parks is 64 metres in diameter or has a collecting area of about one acre and that allows us to detect extremely weak signals coming from the most distant parts of the universe. Because our eyes aren't adapted to detect radio waves, okay, it's invisible to us. And so what radio telescopes do is it illuminates that part of the universe, the objects that emit predominantly in the radio, such as hydrogen gas and, and galaxies and, and other things. 
And so one way we can build up images, if you like, is we just scan the telescope back and forth across the sky and we simply plot the energy that we receive at different positions and then display them on a computer screen, so to speak. But essentially it's a way of allowing us to see what the radio sky looks like. So the telescope only receives signals from space, but never sends them in. Can you explain that to us a bit? Like, give us an example, if you don't mind. Because it's a radio telescope, we study the radio emissions from the stars. We only receive the energy. Stars are hundreds of light years away. And so it's pointless to be transmitting anything to them because uh, we'll never get a signal back. And so we only receive. However, you can use other radio antennas to track spacecraft for example where you want to send a command to the spacecraft and so on but we can't do that because it's not designed to to do that we're specifically a radio astronomy facility our job is to study the radio emissions from the stars and so all we need to do is receive the very weak feeble energy that we're trying to that we can detect from the stars parks radio telescope works 24 7 pretty much except when it's under maintenance so what happens if it's raining, what happens if it's really windy? What happens if it's overcast? Can you give us an example of different types of weather situations and how parks will work in those weather situations? Parks Radio Telescope operates essentially 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right around the clock. We do set a, a few hours aside during the week to do essential maintenance, just a few hours so that we can change receivers or repair things that may be faulty or whatever. But essentially we operate around the clock. We have a lot of people that want to use the telescope and we have only a limited amount of time, so we don't want to waste the time by not observing. Or Most of the time is available for the astronomers to use to do their observations. There are only two key weather phenomena that can affect our observations. One is the wind, high winds, and the other would be a, a lightning, lightning storm or something. Because the, the Parkes Telescope is essentially just a glorified beach umbrella in many ways. It has a very large sail area. And so whenever the wind blows, even a light breeze, it puts a lot of force on the dish. And so usually when the winds are around 40 to 45 kilometres an hour, we consider it unsafe to continue observing and we just park the telescope pointed straight up. And when it's pointing up in, the, in that safe position, it can withstand winds of over 200 kilometres an hour, which is cyclonic, and we never, we never experience that. The other phenomena, weather phenomena that can affect us is, is lightning because when there's lightning about, there's usually a storm that produces a power failure. Throughout the year, we lose around 3% of observing time because of the weather. So for about 97% of the time, we, we are observing uh, or available for observations. So we've heard that Parks was situated where it is because in 1961, there was not a lot of radio pollution, similar to light pollution, but radio interference, so from Wi-Fi, from even light bulbs, anything like that. So with the modern developing world, has that changed at Parks? When the site for the Parks Telescope was chosen back in the late 50s, early 60s, it was chosen because it was rel- it was free of radio interference. All electrical equipment will emit radio signals of, of, of one frequency or another. And so because the telescope was such a large instrument and extremely sensitive, they wanted a site that was free of radio interference, or RFI as we call it, radio frequency interference. And this site was chosen. It's surrounded by uh, some mountains to the east that shield us from the larger population centres further east, such as Orange, Bathurst, Sydney and so on. So it was very, very radio quiet. Since then, of course, things have deteriorated. Now everyone has 
you know, mobile phones and digital TV and NBN and Wi-Fi and um, computers and, and all sorts of electrical equipment that can um, generate radio emission that can overwhelm the really feeble signals that we're trying to, de- to detect. But compared to other sites of similar vintage, it's still quite good. We can still do great work here. But if we were to build the telescope today, we wouldn't build it here at Parks. We'd go even more remote, such as the West Australian Desert in the Murchison Shire. So with low amounts of radio emission required to get the best possible data from Parks, as well as all other radio telescopes, how do astronomers that remotely dial in, do they affect how the telescope works? So is there a Wi-Fi signal? I'm assuming they're on fibre, but how would that affect them? Okay. About six years ago, we switched to a remote observing regime where astronomers no longer had to come to parks to do their observations. They could stay at their home institutions, which could be in Sydney, Melbourne, or on the other side of the world or wherever. And they could just log in over the internet and do their observations online. Um, That's made things a lot more efficient. And we actually have installed high-speed fibre optic lines that allow that to, to happen very, very efficiently. Um, we have a one gigabit per second internet link and upgradable to 10 gigabits if we need it to allow us to not just operate the telescope remotely but to also transport the, the, the high volumes of data that we collect off-site and, and distribute them to the researchers around the world. It's a little ironic because Wi-Fi was developed by our engineers and, and astronomers and one of, the one, one of the places that we can't use Wi-Fi is right here on site <laughs> because um, it interferes with our observations. So can you give us a quick description of the mm-hmm. research that's occurring at Parks? Because as you said, 97% of the year it's operational. The Parks Radio Telescope is, uh, is arguably the finest single-dish radio telescope in the world. From the very inception, from the first year that it was commissioned, the astronomers using the telescope identified the most distant known objects in the universe, quasars, which were billions of light years away. That one discovery increased the size of the universe tenfold, which was quite amazing. They also discovered the magnetic field of the Milky Way galaxy at that time. Since then, we've continued to do great discovery, make great discoveries and do great science here. And one of the more recent um, major discoveries was the the discovery in 2007 of of fast radio bursts. These are the enigmatic bursts of energy. They only last about a millisecond or so. But from the nature of the signal, we know they come from very distant objects, billions of light years away. And no one really knows what, what produces these things. For several years, Parks led the world in discovering these objects. But since then, other observatories have come up to speed with their new equipment to match ours and they're discovering more of these objects now but the fascinating thing about it is that it gives you an insight on the ground floor of an entirely new field of radio astronomy research we have no idea what it is that's the exciting thing you know and it could be an emission from black holes colliding coalescing or two neutron stars some other cataclysmic event or it could even be a beacon from an alien civilization we just don't know and it'd be great over the next few years to, as we discover more of these, to figure out what they are. And that's the really exciting part. So speaking of the fast radio burst, it's for extraterrestrial intelligence. So could you mm-hmm. give us a brief explanation of what's occurring here? Well, here at the telescope, we have a SETI program. SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, essentially looking for alien civilizations. It's a 10-year project. 
commissioned by the Breakthrough Listen Foundation in the United States. It was a foundation established by some people that your listeners may be familiar with, like Mark Zuckerberg and Sergey Brin, and then are the founders of Facebook and Google and so on. And also Yuri Milner, who was a, a Russian billionaire who helped fund a lot of these startups a few decades ago. And Yuri Milner has committed $100 million of his own money into a 10-year program to search for alien civilizations. Currently, we have two such projects. Um, one is the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia in the United States. It's scanning the northern skies. And here in the south, Parks has been commissioned to scan the southern Milky Way, looking for evidence of alien civilizations. We're about three years into our initial five-year contract for that, and it's, it's an extremely exciting project and something that I think is 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 very worthwhile. So even though we, we believe that the possibility of finding something is, is very small, the significance of a discovery, if it is made, is enormous. You know, can you imagine the profound impact it will have on, on us as, as human beings? when we discover that there are other civilizations just like us elsewhere in the universe. At this time, the only place we know in the entire universe where there is life is right here on the Earth. We haven't even found microbes on Mars or the moon or anywhere, you know, um, let alone, you know, intelligent creatures that we can communicate with. And so if something is found, it'll be extremely world-shaking news, if you like, you know, extremely profound. And so for me, that's why it's such an exciting project. We certainly hope that we will find something um, in the time. I tell people that if there's anything to be found, this project will find it. If we don't find it, it's probably because there isn't anything nearby to find. The telescope devotes about 25% of its time to that search, so it demonstrates um, how much we think of the, the significance of it. So it's um, hoping that, that you know, we'll have some really great news in the near future to announce. So then... Are we alone in the universe? Are we alone? Um, you know, I'm a scientist. I go with the evidence. Okay? <laughs> um, and so all I can say is there could be millions or there could be one, us. I'm of the opinion that there probably is. Um, I don't expect the universe to be teeming with intelligent creatures like us, although there may be a lot of bacteria and viruses and you know, single-celled amoebas and, and things like that. But we all, believe, you know, most astronomers would, would be of the opinion that there is other intelligence, intelligent creatures in the universe that we can possibly communicate with. But um, uh, you need the evidence. And to date, the only place we know for certain is right here on the Earth. And what does that say? It says in that we should appreciate our place in the universe a little more. We should appreciate ourselves, you know. We are, as far as we know, we're at the very pinnacle of, ev of evolution in the universe until we find evidence to the contrary. And so, and our Earth is a precious place. You know, Every, the conditions on the Earth are just right. You know, it's really quite amazing, you know, that everything is just right here. And of course, if it wasn't, we wouldn't be here saying how right it was. So we should appreciate our, our place. John Sarkissian, thank you very much for your time and all the best with everything that Parks does. And please keep it going for us all and find something cool. Well, it's been a great pleasure and we'll do our best to keep it going and to continue doing great science. Yeah, thank you.
Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sananda Cray. Special thanks today to Antonio Tarquinio for bringing us this episode and to John Sarkissian for taking the time to talk to us. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks and we've used music in this episode by Critic from Free Music Archive. You can find full credits and sign up to our daily newsletter all on our website at theconversation.com. I'll chat to you soon.